The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 6, 1-13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are just starting Mark chapter 6, if you're joining us. At Sacred City, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, we've been through several books, but we've been in the book of Mark now the, uh, the entirety of this new year, 2015. We've made our way through five chapters. We've been learning a lot about Jesus, who he was, what he taught, how he lived his life, what kind of implications that has for us. Uh, Today, it's kind of unique. If you read it, um, you might read this text and go, nah, okay, nothing for me today. On to the next one. Um, It's kind of, it's not very obtrusive. It's not very, um, it doesn't seem like it's very challenging. It seems like it's kind of a throwaway text, but Um, It's not a throwaway text. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for us. So we're going to go ahead and study it this morning. And what we're going to see is that the disciples, they get a healthy dose of reality today. Okay? They get a healthy healthy dose of reality. Up until this point, Jesus has been leading them on this epic journey. All right? He's been leading them on this epic journey into kind of greater and greater revelations of his power. You know, we we saw Jesus heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Now, that's kind of impressive. But, you know, if you heal somebody of a fever, you're kind of thinking, eh, it might have just been, you know, she might have just been fighting off the disease. She was on the back end of it anyways, right? You just wait this thing out. It's going to be good anyways. But then what do we see? Then Jesus heals a leper of his disease. Then he heals a demon-possessed man of his torment. Then he's in the boat in the middle of a hurricane and, he, and the disciples watch Jesus say, peace be still, and all creation obeys his voice and they get thoroughly freaked out, say, who is this man? And they're afraid of him. And then last week we saw Jesus heal a woman with a chronic condition, an issue that she had had for 12 years that caused constant pain, caused bankruptcy, caused all kind of uh, spiritual and physical torment. Jesus heals that in a moment. And he also gives this Jairus, this um, synagogue leader, something more than he bargained for. He came for his daughter to be healed, but instead he gives his daughter a resurrection, if you remember that. So you kind of see this epic climb up, up Everest a little bit, like, like he's progressively, he's not showing off in any way, but he's progressively showing his disciples more and more and more of his power, and really also at the same time revealing more and more and more of their fear. Everything they're afraid of, he kind of leads them into and then kind of blows it up and shows why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. You should fear Jesus more than you fear all these other things and not afraid of him like he's going to punish you, but afraid of him because he has that kind of power and that kind of authority. Now, can you imagine 
being privy to these instances. Can you imagine being there? And I know growing up, I've been a Christian now, you know, I don't even know how long, 15 years or something, and I've heard this said a thousand times from people. If I could just see a miracle like that, if I could just be there and just watch a hand grow or something, it would be so much easier for me to believe. Now, that's my, that might be true, maybe a little bit, but I think the evidence, if we study the, the, those who are around Jesus, it's actually not true, that they, weren't any, they didn't have any more faith than, than many of us, even though they could see it. And what's interesting, though, is how do you think, you would, how do you think it would re- cause you to react to being Jesus' group and being led in greater and greater revelations of his power? You know 12 people, it's kind of like a posse, Right? I don't know if you guys watched the, there was the biggest fight of all time last night, uh, the boxing match between Mayweather and Pacquiao. Uh, these guys, no matter win or lose, one of them got $180 million, the other got $100 million. I was like, do you know the tithe off of that? That would be amazing. <laughs> right? Now, what's funny is these guys are respectfully number one and number two pound per pound, greatest fighters in the world today, right? They're, they're, they're powerful, right, in their own respects. But when they walk out, you see nobody walks out alone, right? Nobody walks out alone, goes do their thing. They walk out, and they have a posse around them, okay? Now, these, these people around them, some of them have their own jobs. Some of them might just be like, lifelong hype men, just stand behind him and go tell him how great he is. But what's interesting is when these people walk out, they kind of, they walk out with just as much swagger as the, the champion that they're walking out with, right? They kind of think, they're out there looking at people, and they're like, I think they're cheering for me. They're like, get out of the way. We can't see the other guy, right? That's kind of how we think. Now, why is that? Why do these guys that walk out with the fighters, why do they walk out with as much swagger as the fighter? This is why. Because they are in the champ's inner circle, right? They're close. They're in the proximity to greatness. And we believe that greatness can rub off on us. We believe that greatness can kind of wear off on us, that we can kind of suck it up and absorb it if we're close enough to it. The glory of someone who's great, if we get around them, that glory will rub, on us, rub off on us and somehow it will make us great. Don't we all have dreams or have had dreams of being close to someone who's great? Actors, authors, musicians, Business moguls, successful entrepreneurs, celebrity pastors, all-star athletes. We see these icons, right? We see them as people that are larger than life. And we quietly daydream of what it would look like to be around them. Or maybe be with them. What would it be like to hit a round of golf with them? What would it be like to be on the set while they're making the movie? What would it be like to be on stage or backstage with them? What would it be like to have a cup of coffee with these people? Now, when I was a teenager, I remember specifically having these types of delusions of grandeur. Uh, I, I remember being a guy, I remember like being in my backyard practicing football or being alone in a wrestling room practicing wrestling, and I would be imagining a talent scout watching from the sidelines. Like people driving by, like it's, that guy's probably watching me right now. And more than likely, he's saying, that kid is something special. (laughs) I've never seen something like that, right? And I'm thinking, and this is how you're thinking, like, I'm just waiting to be discovered. One of these cars is going to go, you're what we're looking for, kid, right? Or some of you, like, somebody's going to walk by, you're singing in the shower, and they're going to go, you need American Idol. You need to be on it. You need to be discovered. You're the greatest thing. Now, I had a desire, and I think many of us do, we have this desire to be great. Now, what do we mean by that? I think, here's what I think where we go wrong. I think we mean, what we mean by uh, a desire to be great is we have a desire to separate ourselves from the masses. Here's everybody else, and I want my little pedestal to rise. 
And I want the, everyone to around me to go, greatness, right? As I elevate myself from the masses of humanity, everybody else kind of goes, yeah. They see my glory and go, yeah. Isn't that how we define greatness? Well, we might define it that way, but I don't think Jesus does. I don't think scripture does. I don't think that's the definition of being truly great. So I would kind of give us, is that, how, is that great? I would say yes and no. Jesus is great. Let's just settle that. Now, you might not agree with me, but here we are, gathered over 2,000 years after his death, and we're reading about him. We just sang a bunch of songs to him, right? Um, I'm going to be talking about him for about an hour, and I don't think there's too many people in the world, in the history of the world, that that could be said of. There aren't millions of people across the world gathering to worship Plato or Aristotle or Einstein or even the Beatles, who one of the Beatles said that during their heyday that he's more, they are more popular than Jesus. Well, maybe during his day, but not anymore. See, Jesus is no doubt one of the greatest men who has ever lived. We would say that he is for sure the greatest man who has ever lived, and yet Jesus didn't define greatness as being over and above his contemporaries. In fact, today what we see about Jesus, and this is interesting now, I want you to pick up on this, because we've been following Jesus, and Jesus, he's been offending everyone, hasn't he? He's been really offensive. He's offended the religious leaders, he's uh, offended the wealthy, he's offending people who are morally upright and think that their good deeds somehow make God love them more. He's been offending a lot of people. And he's even offended his disciples when he's looking at them and saying they don't have faith. But what we see today, and this is striking, today, what offends people about Jesus, it's not his high moral standard, it's not his proclivity to be around sinners and drunks and to rub elbows with political outcasts. What offends people today isn't his lofty ideals of the kingdom. What offends people today isn't his miracles on the Sabbath and his rule breaking. What offends people today about Jesus is his ordinariness. See, Jesus today, when we're going to see, he, he was great, but he's not great in the way that Floyd Mayweather's great. Thank God. And what we are learning is to know Jesus and to follow Jesus isn't a progression into greatness like Floyd Mayweather. I'm just going to use that. But it's to be ordinary like him. To be ordinary like Jesus. Now, I have some work to do. We've got to explain that. What does that mean? Well, so far, Jesus has chosen 12 protégés to follow him around. He picked dudes that had a wide variety of backgrounds. He's got a few fishermen. He's got an employee of the state, a tax collector. He's got a zealot. These guys would not live together. They would not, they're on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. One's working for the state. One wants to overthrow the state. So he's got all kinds of different people working together in this little group but he has no superstars, okay? He's got no freakishly gifted people. He's got nobody that, he's not walking the Galilean countryside looking for people who stand out among their peers. This guy is a leader of men. I need him on my team. That's not how Jesus sets up his team. He picks everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill people to be in his community, and Jesus believes uniquely, I think, that in order to know Jesus, follow Jesus, be a part of his community, to understand how to live these new lives in God's kingdom, he must not set up a seminary, not train them in a classroom. He must train them in the messiness, and this is a hard word to say, in the ordinariness of everyday life. He can't just give them a stack of books and a few tests to take and say, read these and you can follow me and you get it. He says, follow me in the ordinariness, the messiness of life. Jesus believes that in order to really train people and teach people his ways, 
They must live with him. They must be near him. Life on life in the daily pressures and the daily struggles of normal life. Now, when I came to faith, I came to faith in a hyper-charismatic church, okay? And when I came, what does that mean? That means when I came to faith, I didn't understand at all the normalness of God's kingdom. I wanted to do something amazing, right? I saw, the, I, and I saw and I read in the, book, the Bible here, the miracles and the healings and the demons, and I thought, that's cooler than everyday life. That's unique. That could be something great. I, I, I'm a, I could dig that. I'd like to see that happen. And this is actually a whole, there's a whole stream of Christianity, of people who believe, they kind of be, they're kind of obsessed with the supernatural. Everything is about physical healing. Everything is about the supernatural. I was, pr- we, I was praying with an 86-year-old man who's got cancer, lived a full life, and another more, a more I would say, a hyper-charismatic pastor was praying for this man and was rebuking the devil of cancer and was saying he's got all these long, and I'm, I'm just like, Lord, he's 86 years old. He's lived a wonderful, full life. He's looking at me, and <laughs> kind of opened his eyes like, I'm not one to live a lot longer, man. And we, we kind of joke about it, but I was reading a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers. He was a Welsh preacher, but he preached it mainly in London and uh, during World War II. And he, he was on his deathbed, and his daughter came in, and the, the doctor said he, he uh, wasn't going to make it till morning. And, the doc, and the, his daughter came in. She was going to pray with him. And, the, and he said right away, he said, don't pray for me. Don't pray for healing. Don't keep me from the glory. That was his last words. I was like, oh, don't pray for healing. Don't keep me from the glory. That he saw something greater than a few more days or a few more years in this life. He didn't want to be kept from the glory of God. Now, I kind of started out hyper-charismatic, believing everything was about healing, everything was about this life. Um, I don't want to use big words, so I'm not going to use that word I just had in my head. Um, I thought the supernatural was way cooler than normal life. But what we see here today is Jesus was actually too normal for some people. Think about that. He didn't come to earth in a lightning bolt like Thor. He wasn't created in a lab like the Hulk, right? He wasn't the result of years of study at the likes of Harvard or some Ivy League school. In our story today, it's not Jesus' miracles that offend people the most or his morality or standard of morality that offends people the most. It's his haunting earthiness, his humility, his normalcy. And what we're going to see is that this is the way of Jesus. And therefore, this is the way of those who follow him. This new way of living, this new normal that comes from following Jesus is still going to be highly offensive to some people. Now, let's get in our text. That's a long introduction, but you guys are used to that. Chapter 6, verse 1. We've got Jesus. He's been all over the countryside, all around the Sea of Galilee, And he's been doing all kind of crazy and miraculous things. And now, chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his posse, his disciples, followed with him. Now, where does Jesus go back to? This is Nazareth. Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, what do we know about Nazareth? I'll tell you what we know about Nazareth. Not much. Nazareth was so small and so insignificant that it's barely even mentioned outside the Bible. Uh, Josephus, a famous historian, doesn't even mention Nazareth. Um, Nazareth, you can find it only mentioned a couple hundred years after the birth of Jesus in some historical documents. Why? Because it's nowheresville. That's what it is. You go somewhere out of the state and you say something like, oh, I'm from Mount Joy, Iowa. And they say, Okay, I trust you on that. And they would say, does anything good come from Mount Joy? Okay, that's 
I apologize if you're from Mount Joy. But that's what he's talking about. We have this response by one man who meets Jesus. They say, come, you got to see this guy. He's coming from Nazareth. What's the response? Does anything good come from Nazareth? Why? Because nothing good came from Nazareth. That's why. It was a tiny, obscure village. Now let's keep reading. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? So stop right here. We hear this guy, hey, there's a preacher coming in next week. He's going to preach for me, and he's from Mount Joy. Everybody kind of goes, oh, I haven't heard of anybody from Mount Joy. Then he gets here, and he's preaching, and everybody's sitting there going, whoa, this guy is blowing our minds. This guy is a powerful communicator. The truth that he's communicating speaks deep to, deep to my heart. He doesn't preach like other people. The, how, where has this guy been? Right? That's kind of the response that they're getting. Look, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom? He's very wise, given to him. And then look at this. How are such mighty works done by his hands? So we see Jesus is still doing some miracles. It's going to say he's going to do a few healings and a few miracles there. So they're seeing the miracles. But look at the next verse. It's not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon are not his sisters here among us. So what are they doing? They're putting two and two together. Oh, wait, wait, wait. That's a, I, I want to use a last name, but I don't want to use a common last name around here, so I stopped myself there. But that's a blank last name. Oh, I know his brothers. I know his sisters. Oh, he's the car. He's been working at the factory down there on the road. This is that guy? He didn't go off to school? How is this guy? So you see they're putting two and two together here. They're saying, well, wait, wait. He's a phenomenal communicator. He's even doing miracles, but we know his lineage, We've met his brothers. We've met his sisters. And can I just push pause here? There's some like funny like little things that go around about Jesus. Like Jesus was like a little baby and his mother was like trying to, trying to like wash him in the tub, but he's standing on the water, right? And she's like, get in, right? And Jesus is like this little super baby. Okay, that's, that's not reality, Okay? If you go to school with super, if you go to school with Jesus and he never packs a lunch, but every day he's like, Poof, and he's just making his own lunch, right? And he's make, maybe there's no lunch lady in this class because he just makes everybody lunch every day. You wouldn't grow up saying this. Wait, wait, wait. Judas's brother? No, I I beat the brakes off that kid in second grade. That can't be the son of God. Right? Like, they've grown up with him, and he's, he's lived such a normal life, such a normal life, that they're like, how? How could he be doing these things? This doesn't make sense. Right? So normal. So ordinary was his first 30 years. The carpenter? Who, if you had a mir- miraculous powers, right? Who would use a handsaw, right, to build a house? Let me think. I could work eight hours and get two boards cut, or I could go, done, and have the whole house built. Right? What is this telling us? Jesus didn't bypass the ordinary sweat on your brow, labor, feeling the wood beneath his fingers, cutting it, sawdust flying. He didn't bypass that, even though he could have. He was absolutely normal in this instance. Now, what's interesting, and we should pause here because up until this point, the crowds have been blown away and amazed at Jesus' authority. The way that he teaches and the way that he's healed and the way that he's performed miracles. But today, this is shocking. Today, it is Jesus who is amazed. The crowds aren't amazed. It's Jesus who's amazed today. And he's amazed at his own hometown's unbelief. The key sentence in this passage is right, it's coming up right next. Let's, let's read it. And they took offense at him. They took offense. That word is, um, it's, it's uh, scandalon. It's, where, it's what we get the word scandal from. 
This was a scandal to them. It's, a, it's, it's meant to be a stumbling block, a stumbling stone of offense. This caused them to sin. This caused them to reject Jesus. No, he's too normal. He's too ordinary. He's from Nazareth. We know him. We know his sisters. We know his brothers. They've pushed away from him. This is the key text of this verse. They were offended because he was too ordinary. They rejected Jesus because he wasn't spectacular enough. He wasn't supernatural enough. They were tripped up by Jesus. This is how scholar James Edwards describes it. The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then we would believe. For people who are obsessed with separating themselves from others by connecting with someone who is truly great, Jesus was a terrible put down. Jesus didn't come with a swagger like Floyd Mayweather. He didn't come down in a bolt of lightning like Thor. Jesus, for people who want to be around somebody great so they feel really great, so they are exalted above other people, Jesus was a terrible letdown. Think about how often we want to be great by having cool people in our crowd. We want talented, well-educated, well-resourced, healthy, wealthy people in our circle. Why? Maybe it'll rub off on us and we'll be elevated. And here comes Jesus. No house, no money, no striking good looks. No matter what this new AD show my one problem with this AD show, Jesus is a freaking supermodel, okay? We have a problem with that. Isaiah says he didn't have any looks that people would look at him and look the other way, right? No good looks, no impressive resume. He comes from Nowheresville, and the people of Nowheresville reject him. John 1.11 says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Why did they reject him? Because he was too normal. He was too ordinary. Now, I don't want to dismiss the relevant, how relevant this text is for us today. Jesus comes hidden in the everyday ordinariness that, and if you are looking for something flashy, you're going to miss him. If you're looking for something shocking and extraordinary, you might miss Jesus. Our faith is meant to be ordinary. It's meant to be every day, the messiness and the everydayness of life. That's where our faith is meant to take root. For us on Sunday morning, our gathering is meant to be ordinary. We built this to be ordinary. And there's, I'll just say, there's a lot of people that kind of push against that and reject that. And they want every single Sunday to be extraordinary. So they put all kind of time and all kind of effort and all kind of crazy lights and loud guitar solos. And they're trying to pull on people's emotional strings. And they're trying to flip it every week. So everybody has this emotional, uplifting experience every week. And somehow this, you come into Sunday and it's not normal. It's not like my everyday life. It's something, it's a respite. It's something different. It's extraordinary. We reject that. God gave us his words in a book. That's ordinary. To know Jesus, you have to read about him. What's more ordinary than reading? I mean, it, this is not just an ordinary book. We're going to say that. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's living and active. We believe that, but there's not much more ordinary in this everyday world than reading. We do it every day. And there's many people who miss Jesus and they miss God because they want a vision. They want a voice. They want a supernatural experience. All I need is a 40 foot angel to arrive on my bedside in the morning when I wake up. Is that too much? Is that too much to ask? All I need is some supernatural miracle to believe. And God gives us a book. Jesus is known primarily through reading. That's normal. 
This is one of the reasons we teach our children to read and we want to teach our children to love reading. Because knowing God is knowing the God of this book, is studying and reading and soaking in it. So it shapes you into a certain type of person. Now what else? Singing. Singing is ordinary. We sing every day, most of us. There's probably some people in here that have really sad lives that don't sing very often. You, you might prefer math equations or something. But we sing because lovers sing. Singing is, it's not conjuring up something spiritual. It's not, you know, some kind of pagan ritual where we're trying to get God's attention through all of our actions. And maybe if I do this, or maybe if I dance, or maybe if I, uh-oh, Uh Uh-oh, I'm getting real wild now. Maybe if I do this, or maybe if I clap, then the gods will approve and I'll have some kind of experience. It's not what singing's about. It's what lovers do. We're expressing our love to God through song. It's It's ordinary. God gave us ordinary things. Not only that, but you're shaped by the ordinary structure of your life. I would say you're shaped by the liturgy of your life. The things that you do over and over and over and over, they're ordinary, but they shape you into a certain type of people. They shape your hearts. If you listen to sports radio every single day, okay, it's going to shape your heart in a certain way because you're going to be thinking about sports radio. It's going to be on your mind. It's going to shape your desires, your loves, probably even your clothes. You're going to be wearing, you know, whatever your favorite team is, and then it's going to shape your worship. You're going to want to express that love for sports through going to a game, through watching, through rejoicing, through talking about it. You're going to be a missionary to your, of your team. See, this is how it works. It's a liturgy that shapes us into a certain type of people. Our Sunday morning liturgy is no different, except it's not a liturgy shaped around a football team. It's not a liturgy shaped around consumerism. It's a liturgy shaped around the gospel. It's meant to shape us into a certain type of people, humble, repentant, worshipful Christians. Think about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Break bread, drink wine. Has that ever struck you how ordinary that is? He could have said, as often as you gather, spend an hour in silent meditation thinking about glory. We'd be like, glory? This has got to be something spiritual. Right? Something real nebulous. You can't really get your arm, your mind around it. He doesn't. He says, break bread, drink wine. Ordinary. Now listen, have you ever been challenged by that? Have you ever been like, there's got to be something like extra ordinary about this. And it, we believe the body and the blood of Christ. But have you ever came and you, expect, you were expecting something from the supper? I'm going to get goosebumps. I'm never going to sin again after I eat this. This is, this is, once I eat this, that sin is gone from me, right? How'd that work out for you? It's not meant to be that. It's ordinary. It's meant to be, does it provide sustenance, spiritual sustenance to our soul? Yes, I believe it does. Is it a means of grace? Absolutely. The word of God is a means of grace. Community is a means of grace. The gathering is a means of grace. The meal is a means of grace. And guess what? They're all painfully ordinary. Doesn't that frustrate you about how ordinary your community is? Really? Like, man, I really wish we were more mature than we are. I really wish that the way that guy chews didn't bother me. Right? I really wish people could show up on time. I really wish we weren't ordinary but our community is painfully ordinary and the gospel is meant to be lived out and fleshed out in the ordinary. Now, why? Because the Christian life isn't about only what happens on Sunday, some supernatural, esoteric experience in the heavenlies here. It's not what it's about. The Christian life, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus, how Jesus lived. The Christian life is a life that's meant to be lived in the everyday ordinariness of life. It's concerned with real life. It's our ordinary lives that Jesus wants to redeem. It's the ordinary world that Jesus is at work renewing until everything sad comes untrue. 
It's in our flesh and blood bodies that we meet our neighbors and we love our wives and we raise our children. Jesus meets us in the ordinariness of our everyday lives. That means changing diapers and reading books and building homes and selling insurance and teaching children and working out. That's where Jesus meets us. That's where our faith goes. That's where the gospel works itself down into our everyday normal life. If you're expecting Jesus to knock you down and blind you and speak from heaven, you might just miss him. He has done that a couple times, but I wouldn't hold out for it. Jesus was ordinary. Church should be ordinary. And by saying that, I'm not denying anything supernatural. God can heal. God can deliver. God can do leaps of sanctification in moments. God can do any of those things. But that's not how he typically works. Following Jesus is ordinary most of the time. Now, here, why is that a problem for us? Do you know people go, Hey, what's going to be, what's going to be, what's going to, what's Sunday going to be like? If I said, oh, it's going to be ordinary. Ordinary? Well, I better not invite somebody then. I think we, what's Sunday going to be like? Amazing. I'm going to swing out of the rafters. (laughs) Right? What do we, what do we expect? Like, really? Like, Sunday going to be good? It'll be ordinary. Why is ordinary a bad word? right? We think ordinary is about, why? Why do we have this, why are we repulsed by the idea of ordinary? Now, let me quote, I can't quote the guy's last name, Chuck mm-hmm. Palalinyak, mm-hmm. all right, he wrote the <laughs> he wrote the book, he wrote, I'm just going to say this, he wrote the book Fight Club, and listen to this, what he says. In, in the, his main character, Tyler Durden, says this in the, in the middle of the book. And it was made into a movie with Brad Pitt, blah, blah, blah. We're the middle children of history, men. No purpose or place. We've no great war. No great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've been all raised by television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very ticked off. Why do we reject the ordinary? We've been trained. We've been swimming in a culture that says everybody's American idols. That's how you get people that have no business trying out for American Idol on there, absolutely confident that they just nailed it, right? We've all been trained to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. So why do we push away from the ordinary? Listen, hear this. Pushing away from the ordinary is pushing away from Jesus. Jesus didn't come as a millionaire. Jesus didn't come as a movie god or a rock star. Therefore, it might just mean that you're not going to be one either. And it also might mean that if Jesus was okay with ordinary, the Son of God, extraordinary, was okay living in the ordinary, then maybe we should learn how to be ordinary too. We should embrace our normalcy, embrace the ordinariness of our world and our lifestyle. Not only that, but Jesus' entire life speaks to the emptiness of our own search for happiness, our own search for glory and greatness. Do we lie to our kids? Sons, grow up, get a good education, get a good paying job, and you'll be happy. Do you know that by, from experience? Are, are, are you happy? Is that the path you took? Education's the answer. Get a great degree, and you're going to be happy. Reach six figures, you'll be happy. Seven figures. Mayweather last night, first boxer in history, nine figures on one fight. You think he's happy? Jim Carrey has a great quote 
He says, I wish everybody in the world would get everything they want so they could realize it won't make them happy. See, Jesus' life, it confronts this idea that we have that our happiness is somehow on the other side of that next thing. Jesus' entire life speaks to the emptiness of our own search for happiness. Jesus was happy. Jesus was joyful. Jesus was satisfied. Jesus was blessed by God. And yet Jesus was ordinary, poor, single, and often misunderstood. What does that say about the ways in which we are seeking happiness? Jesus' life shows us that happiness has nothing to do with how much stuff you own, how gifted you are, how popular you are, or even where you come from. True happiness comes from God. It comes from being in a new and right relationship with God. Tom Brady, one of the most successful men on the planet. Super Bowl rings, married to a supermodel, millionaire upon millionaire. He's sitting down in an interview, and he says, I've done it all, but there's got to be more. There's... there's there's got to be something more. See, and this text speaks to that. Not a really exciting text, but it speaks to this. And this speaks to how a person comes to know this happiness, how a person comes to know this God in a new way. And it's, a, it's in the exact opposite way that we would expect Listen to me. This is, so, this is what's shocking about this text right now. When, someone, when I'm presenting the gospel to someone and I say, okay, do you want to know God? This is what they're hearing. If they say yes, here's what, okay, here's how you know God. This is what people are expecting. A great quest is about to come, is about to follow. This is how you know God. Up on top of the highest mountain, there grows a flower. You climb this mountain with no gear, no thing. Climb it, bring back the flower, and then you can know God, right? This great epic, knowing God must be epic. It must be, it must take all of my, I mean, it's gonna be absolutely require everything of me. It's all my effort, all my strength. And what this text is showing us, it's the exact opposite. It's not a quest that we go after. It's a quest where Jesus comes down, he comes from the top of the mountain down to the ordinary village and he lives the life that we can't live. It's the exact opposite of what we would expect. Many times we think coming to know God means we're going to be pulled out of this world. It doesn't come by human beings elevating themselves above the rest of the population, achieving some great feat of strength. The good people rising to the top of humanity and God sweeps up all the good people and he condemns all the bad people. Or the rich rising above the poor. The great being exalted at the expense of all the normal people. But Jesus shows us salvation. The way that we come to know God in a new way is that Jesus, God, becomes a normal dude. Jesus becomes normal for us. This is grace. Jesus, the son of God, moves into our backwoods town. Jesus moves into our neck of the woods. He lived our normal life, except that he never sought happiness in the ways that we do. Jesus never sinned. He lived his whole life perfectly loving God and loving his neighbors and loving his friends and loving his family and even on his death on the cross, loving his enemies. Sorry. And Jesus is willing to accept us, to invite us into this family, as long as we put our faith in him and we don't get offended by his ordinariness. What does that mean specifically? I, I, don't expect him to do everything you want him to do. Don't expect him to show up in a dream and tell you who you're supposed to marry. 
Don't expect him to remove all the difficulties from your life. He's not going to. Don't buy into the lie that if you give enough money, you'll never be broke and you'll never have financial problems. And if you give money, you'll never be sick. That's a lie. Don't buy into the lie that following Jesus won't feel kind of painfully ordinary most of the time. Mark seems to think that this encounter, see, we're about to transition here. Mark seems to think that this encounter, this experience, was just what the disciples needed before they got sent out on mission. So we don't see him like building up to this huge pinnacle and then he just cast demons out of people. He just raised the dead and they're like amped up and like, we're gonna take this city for Jesus, go. He goes, well, before we do that, let's go back home where you're no big deal. Let's go back home where we're going to marvel people's unbelief, how ordinary we are. He seems to like bring them down, calm them down. It ain't going to be roses and sunshine and demons into pigs and calming the storm. It's not going to be like that all the time. It's going to be like this too. Rejected on your own turf. Offended. Offensive to people. Most ministry is done in the ordinary stuff of life. There's a, I posted a video a couple weeks ago on our, the city of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And Rosaria uh, was a, a professor at Syracuse University. Her specialty was taking uh, works of literature and analyzing them and dis- de- deciding on whether chapter one made sense of the whole. So like how the pieces all fit together as a cohesive unit. She was a literary scholar um, and she was um, a lesbian in a committed uh, homosexual relationship. And she lived, she moved in next door to this old reformed pastor. And her lifestyle, this is how she describes it in this video, that one of the great things about the, the homosexual community is that somebody's house is opened every night of the week. That she, many people who are gay feel lonely And one of the great things about the community is somebody's house is open every night of the week. You know where to go Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. So you cure this loneliness by being around people. And she experienced this type of community. Well, the surprising thing was her, this, this, this pastor that lived next door, his house looked a lot like hers. People were coming in and out all the time, all kinds of different people, guys walking in with leather, you know, getting off their Harley, walking in with leather vests, and guys walking in in suits, getting out of their BMW, like all kind of different people walking in and out. And she was, she was writing from a um, very liberal, uh, feminist perspective. She was writing on the right-wing conservatives. She was writing a book on it. And so she had to study the Bible. She had to read the Bible in order to do it. And, and she's a literary scholar. That's what she's meant to do. That's what she's trained to do. She had never read the Bible. And she, she was reading the Bible four to five hours a day in order to write this book. And uh, she was on leave from the school and all this stuff. And she was reading the Bible and she was, kept coming up with problems and she would be like, I'm gonna go next door. So she'd go next door to the pastor and he'd explain it to her, have a cup of coffee with her, sit, talk, just hang out. He, counseling points would be going in and out, just everyday life. And over a period of two years, two years of debate, of dialogue, of, she even said, of arguing, Um, she first off said, this is the most coherent and cohesive book I have ever read in my entire life. Written by so many different authors over a thousand year period of time, I can't believe how consistent it is from the beginning to the end that there's a holy God that demands justice, but yet he has provided a way that, that his justice can be turned away, his wrath can be turned away through Jesus Christ. She was blown away by it. And after two years, she becomes a Christian. And she would say, she would, she would, go, to, she would go to the church and she'd park across the street and she'd just watch people. Because she was saying, I don't know, if, I, don't, I don't think, I think I would freak people out. Like she saw herself lesbian, left-wing, feminist, The church will burn down if I walk through that building. And she says, she's sitting there watching it and these huge vans are pulling up. She's like, what is that? Like painter vans. She's like, I thought those were just for construction. And then homeschool families would get out. People, 
have that many children? She's like, it's like she's at the zoo and she's watching all these exhibits. But what's she doing? She's trying, this is what she's doing. She's, she's trying to try on Christianity. What's it going to look like with me in it? What's it going to look like on me? And it wasn't through some phenomenal service that she came to faith. It was through ordinary, everyday means of grace, reading the scriptures, having a person to, con- to talk to, to go back and forth, to argue with a pastor in her life. And she went from her, the trajectory of her life, she says, was a closeted homosexual, open homosexual, in a committed relationship, converted Christian, celibate, converted Christian, homosexual, heterosexual woman, Christian, and now she's a pastor's wife. It's phenomenal. And this is what she says. Listen to this. I learned how to be in community through the homosexual community. Somebody's house is open every night. We need that when we're lonely. I learned how to grieve because I I buried so many of my gay friends that were dying of AIDS through the 90s. I learned how to be there for people through my homosexual community, and it's serving me now as a pastor's wife. We need to hear this. This is the ordinary way God changes people. People that the culture says are unchangeable, by the way. People that may, may never step in to hear me rant for an hour. But the gospel lived out in the ordinariness, the messiness of life. This is what it does. Let's keep going. Uh, Jesus says, they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. And he could not do mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And look, and he marveled at them because of their unbelief. He was too normal for them. And he went out among the villages teaching. And then he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. First off, let me show you this. This idea in our culture that we all come together on a Sunday morning and then you go out as a little missionary by yourself in your own workplace and in your own home. Um, Jesus didn't do that. He sent them out two by two. This is why we live in a community that's on mission together. Okay? It's hard to do it. You, you can't do it on your own. Right? We need people to help us. We need a community to be on mission with us. Let's keep reading. He, cha- he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It's interesting. What does he, he tells them to go out with just a staff. One set of clothes and a staff. What's he doing? He's removing from them. He's taking, he doesn't want them to take anything that they, they, they would have temptation to trust in. Right? All right, we got all this money. I know what we can do. Let's set up a huge thing. Right? Anything they could possibly trust in, any strength that they have of their own, any, you know, marketing scheme that they could come up with. He says, nope. One set of clothes, one staff. Go preach. Go build relationships. Go live an ordinary life in and amongst people. No extra food. Go do ministry. Trust the Father. Jesus says, God will take care of you. And then it's interesting. Jesus gives them power. He gives them authority for the mission. So they're not out there on their own trying to conjure things up. Jesus has already got people that are out there that are already elect, that are waiting to hear the gospel. So when, he pro- when they proclaim the gospel, they're going to respond. He gives them power to do this. And he also says, if you go to a place and the people don't listen to you and they don't receive you, shake off the dust of your feet. What's he saying? Guys, this is is one of the hardest things for me to hear. He's saying, some people won't listen to you. For some, you're going to be too miraculous. They They raise their hands at that church? They think God speaks to them at that church? What? Some, you're going to be too supernatural. For others, you're going to be too normal, too ordinary. 
Your job isn't to convince everyone, Jesus is saying. Your job isn't to save anyone. You're not the father. You don't elect. You're not the son. You don't save. You're not the spirit. You don't convict of sin and fill. You don't do any of those things. Your job is to be faithful with the message that I give you and let me deal with the results. And if people reject you, shake off the dust and go somewhere else. Not arrogantly, <laughs> like right in their face. Oh, you don't like what I had to say? Shake it off. I'm out of here. Right? What's the message he says to proclaim? Hear this, church. What's the message that they go out proclaiming? This is what it says. So they went out and proclaimed that people should what? What? Repent. Now, that is not popular. Repent means to change directions. Believe in Jesus. You are trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your wealth. You're trusting in your sexuality. You're trusting in your identity. You're trusting in all these things. Turn from that and trust only in Jesus Christ, no matter how ordinary he looks. That God has sent Jesus to save people from their sins. This was the same message that Jesus came proclaiming we saw in Mark chapter 1. Repent. Now let me say there is a growing group in our society today, and even in the church world today, that says, that removes repentance from the gospel. And they say this, you'll hear it. The message isn't repent. The message is God loves everybody. The message is God loves you. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. Does God love everyone in a sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. In a sense, God died for everyone, but specifically God, Jesus, died for a specific group of people, his church, anyone who will trust in him and have faith in him and believe in him, those are the ones that have been effectually called and saved by the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the message primarily, first and foremost, of the gospel isn't God loves you. The message is turn from alternate salvation strategies. You're trying to save yourself through being great. You're trying to save yourself through being moral. You're trying to save yourself through your education. You're trying to save yourself through your sexuality. You have to turn from that and embrace Jesus Christ as the only, salvation, only place salvation can be found. Now here's what happens. If you're pounding, God loves you, God loves you, God, lo God, God loves you. If I could actually convince you of that, why should you change anything about your life? God loves me. He doesn't care who I sleep with. God loves me. He doesn't care that who I live with. God loves me. He doesn't care what I do with my money. God loves me. On and on and on we go. The message of the apostles and of Jesus was not God loves everybody. The message was turn from your sins. Turn from your own ways. Your way does not end in happiness. Listen, we could say this morning, listen to Tom Brady. I could say this morning, listen to Jim Carrey. That doesn't end in happiness. Turn from your self-salvation strategies and turn to Christ who came in the ordinary. This is why we don't like it. I want Thor to come down and go, I serve Thor. He's awesome. I don't want to look at Jesus, average looking, poor, homeless, never been married man and go, that's my guy. In my natural disposition, I don't want to do that. But the gospel, the message of the gospel must be met with repentance. A turning from our ways to Jesus. We must recognize that all of the true everlasting happiness comes from Jesus. Now listen, part of this is a message for us to kind of grow up. Excuse me. Embracing the ordinariness of Jesus and the ordinariness of life and the ordinariness of mission is a, is a key piece of growing up. 
Let me tell you what my kids like. My kids want constant entertainment. If I would let them choose, they would go to Wisconsin Dells in the morning, Adventureland in the afternoon, and Disney at night. Every single day until that got boring. And you know what? I shudder to think what would happen when that did get boring. What, what's next? That's, that's immaturity. Parents, some of you are breeding that in your children by running frantically, nonstop, trying to keep them entertained. We've done the, the church a disservice by trying to make kids' ministries like little Disneylands out there, and then they step in and, church is boring. No, it's ordinary. So is your everyday life. What pushes people into drugs, into alcohol, into addiction, sexual addictions? Life is too ordinary. Life is too ordinary. When I'm on a drug, it's real. It's better. See, here's maturity though. As we mature, as the spirit matures us, we come to realize that the greatest things in life are the ordinary things. Sitting on the deck in the warm sun, feeling the breeze blow across your skin, watching leaves dance on the trees. We drove by the Mississippi and it was sun shining and my daughter, she's two, she looked out, she goes, look at all the lights in the water. And then the sun was just glistening on the water. She's like, there's a bunch of lights out there. It's beautiful. Listening to your kids, kids giggle as you tickle them. Sinking your teeth into a juicy steak. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Sharing a cup of coffee with a friend. Sit, I mean, we, I know, this is vacation talk, but sitting on the beach. <sighs> Ordinary. Walking through the woods, seeing how the light shines through the trees. Ordinary, but brilliant. And to all these things and to a billion more, Jesus says, yes, they are good. Enjoy them. Worship me in them. I'm the creator of all this ordinary. I lived amongst the ordinary. I walk and came and redeemed and blessed the ordinary. Embrace them. Worship me through them. For this is preparing you for the new heavens and the new earth that will be ordinary. Brilliant, beautiful, spectacular, but ordinary. Not floating, oh, thank Jesus. Not floating on clouds, playing harps. Right? Shooting imaginary darts at each other or something up there, right? Cupids. That's not the new heavens and the new earth. Work, probably government, cities, recreation, sports, normal things in the presence of God with the removal of all sin and shame and tears. What a day that'll be. It's, we're tempted to say, come follow Jesus. He'll make your life extraordinary. For some of us, that might be the case. Some of us, you, you'll go on and you might be in government and you might do great things and you might, some of that's the case, but many of us, most of us, come follow Jesus. He's cool with ordinary. Salvation. He came, became Ordinary. So that through him, by faith in him, we could be ordinary. Actually, in the realization of that term, like Adam and Eve in the garden, that was ordinary before sin. That's what we're being made into. That's where we're headed. A new ordinary. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for not doing things our way. I think your story, in its ordinariness, is still is spectacular. Human mind dreams, we dream up superheroes falling from the sky and being created in a lab and all these spectacular displays of power. And you are powerful, but you, you didn't come the way that we'd expect. You came humble. You came normal from nowheresville. And it's in your ordinariness that we could miss you. Father, what we need in ordinary faith. We need a Jesus 
who knows what it's like to be in difficult relationships, who knows what it's like to work hard, who knows what it's like to not have enough money to pay the bills at the end of the month. We need a Jesus who knows what it's like to have family members um, curse them, curse us, turn their backs on us. We need a Jesus who knows what it's like to walk, um, to sweat, to be sore in the morning. We need a Jesus who knows what it's like to suffer. And Father, you sent that Jesus to live an ordinary life for us. And we fail to live that ordinary life. We reject that ordinary. We reject your standard. And that is sin. And we deserve to be cast aside and pushed out of your kingdom because of that rebellion from you. We, re- we reject Jesus when we reject ordinary. We confess that this morning. We ask that you would forgive us and give us grace and help us embrace it Help us live a new ordinary that sees you behind it all and in it all. And for those of us in this room, Father, that they don't know you, would you give them faith to believe that Jesus Christ lived a life that they can't live and he died the death that they deserve so that they could have a new relationship with God. They could have a new normal from this moment on. And as we come and we take the supper, the bread, and the, blood, and the, and the wine, presents your body and your blood, this normal eating and drinking, would you communicate grace to us? Would this be um, an avenue, a means of grace to us that's ordinary, that you're with us as this food goes down into our stomachs and gets digested and pushed out to all of our cells in our body that provides us energy to move and live and breathe the rest of this day, would you also remind us that your spirit goes in us and it goes deep down to the deepest parts of us and you animate all of us, that we live and move and have our being through you and through your spirit and even through your word. May we be reminded that to eat your word this week, to take it into us and let it continually to chip away at us and work us over and, and help us Embrace the normal. Pray this in Christ's powerful name, Jesus' name, amen.